It's episode 58 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Jules Munns. Hello. 58 episodes. We're just saying, as we set up, that's... Like, not that long ago, that would have been the entire improv scene done. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? That would have been all of the people talked to, oh, well, I guess I'll do a podcast about knitting or something. (laughs) Or the, um, like, the fourth bridge. You can just go then go back to the beginning and do them all in order. Do them all, yeah. Because things sort of changed in the year or half or whatever it's taken to get this far. Yeah, you could get them to listen to their own podcast and then say what they agree and disagree about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with with themselves about sort of eighteen months ago, I, I recorded um, Chris Mead's uh, Yesbot podcast um, about I don't know three or four months ago, which I don't know if you have you listened to any of it. Yes, so the I format is you, you have to program an improv robot with the five uh, commands that would make it the perfect improviser. Uh, for, is it for you to watch or for you to improvise with? I can't remember, uh, or maybe d- to turn it into you as an improviser. We recorded it, and then two days later, I had to call him up and say, Chris, I disagree with myself. Um, please don't release that. We need to go back and record it again. And I, I, he was in a bit of assault with me after that. For, and, obviously. And often, well, one might say, rightly so. Mm. These... Absolutely. A lot of work goes into these yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. He's got all these fancy microphones. <laughs> yes, he does, he does. So, what is your official title at the nursery? I know this is all a bit in flux at the moment, because um, for a long time, uh, Judith and I would both say co-artistic director, um, but she is less... Uh, improv isn't necessarily her um, chosen first art form. She's an actress. Um, so, that as we've grown in the last uh, six or eight months and taken on more staff members, the, the definition of the of the roles has become more important. So I think my current title is Artistic Director, and she's now, it's hilarious when you get this grandiose, she's now Chief Operating Officer, and they have two other co-artistic directors, Chris, as previously mentioned, and Heather. Um, so the three of us do the programming, and then between Judith and I, we do the practical stuff. So it... And then, yeah, and then there's managers of other bits and pieces. So I think that's currently how it stands, but I'm sure the website is out of date. <laughs> right, okay. Um, mm. So exciting times for the nursery. Mm-hmm. We see the opening of a new space. Yes. Tell me about that. It's something we've been working towards for ages, and uh, we have always been kind of careful about the amount of information that we release, because obviously, as with any sort of new business project there's, there's a lot of full starts but if that's not um, if that's not something that you're used to it looks like a lot of times when things didn't go right which of course it is but in the spirit of improv um, we yeah we've come very close to opening a, a theater space I reckon like five times and obviously wow. as some of your listeners will know we've um, we've used the Edric theater in, in the Suffolk University for just under an academic year. Um, uh, and this came along because this delicatessen um, were talking to British Land, who owe, who owned the space that we're working in, in up in Broadgate. And British Land were very excited about what this delicatessen had done before and very interested in the way that they use buildings, and the meanwhile space use and all that stuff. Um, but Theatre Delicatessen's primary sort of 
artistic output is experiential theatre. And British Land and Broadgate Estates, the two, um, the management company and the owners, uh, specifically wanted something auditorium based because I, I guess if you're outside of the theatrical environment, that's something you can understand more. There's mm. a stage there. There's a bunch of people there, and they sit and watch it there. Mm. Um, so there's Delicatessen, who we'd spoke to a couple of times before about different buildings, which either didn't come off for one reason or the other, um, approached us and said, well, you're auditorium-based. Would you like this room? And now we have the lovely Nursery Theatre Broadgate, which mm. is uh, very fancy and exciting. And I'm sure I can send, put some links out with this with pictures of it and renderings of the exciting new bar, which is being built this very evening. Um, and it's, yeah. it, it's the, the bar is themed around, is it a treehouse? Yeah, there's sort of, it's like a... <laughs> that natural because naturally I associate alcohol with tree houses with children and heights well, yeah, yeah right um, <laughs> it's a classic combination so the the original uh, we were just talking about what we wanted the place to feel like um, uh, one of the things I, I think is lovely about the um, uh, the improv community but also dangerous about the improv community is it feels super friendly and like once you've been to one event you're one of us and you're part of the big improv hug uh, and of course, the danger of that is the kind of exclusivity of it, and people feeling like, "Oh, I have to break into that," and all that kind of thing. Um, so, a treehouse was a kind of a, a joking touch point for how we wanted the place to feel—a place where you, you know, a little up, bit up and away from the world. You got your milk and cookies. Um, no one else can reach you there. Um, and then that became a literal kind of thematic thing without me knowing it, because our designer Greg and Chris, who was involved in a lot of this stuff. Um, started using this in the kind of concept sketches and suddenly, yeah, it's treehouse themed. <laughs> and I don't think necessarily if you walked in you would go, oh, it's a treehouse, but it's got that feel of like knocked together from different bits of wood and yeah, friendly and cosy and, and nooks and nooks and crannies to sit down in and have your beer with your, with your new friend that you met during the opening front. <laughs> So, uh, what's what's the new space? I, I mean, I know because I've been there. <laughs> but, but for anyone that hasn't, but thanks for teeing me up. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what's it like? Um, what does it allow you to do that you perhaps couldn't do um, without it? Yeah, right. So I think um, th most of us who are kind of at the heart of the nursery project come from a theatrical background rather than from a like a comedy background or a sketch background, so one of the things that we've always wanted to do is make something which is a theatre. Not necessarily that you're only doing po-faced, tight-assed improv, but... Um, although there is room for that. Although there is <laughs> totally room for that, and that, you know, we'll be programming as much of that as we possibly can. Um, it's giving the full facilities for uh, improvisers to have space to move and the the lighting and sound setup that's going to really allow them to do something which feels like a show rather than feels like um, something above a pub because many great improv shows happen above pubs and I have and some of them have very well equipped stages and are in fact basically a theatre rather pub like like a, the Miller and some of them a Grand Theft Impro still at that place uh, what's it called the Wheat Sheaf the Wheat Sheaf in the centre of London I, I think they are know. but they they performed there for. I think a decade or something and there's some of the best improvisers in the country on a stage which when all three of them were on it was really crowded <laughs> and where if you wanted to cool the room down in the interval you got to open the windows behind the stage <laughs> and remember to close them again to stop the sound coming in the second half and it, they did amazing wonderful shows um, and that was when there was a little improv about so we wanted to 
give a, a full theatrical environment. So the, the new space is like a it's a black box theatre with curtains along the back, lighting rig with colour changes and um, uh, a programmable board and all this stuff which you can do uh, cool stuff with um, and proper like patched in sound so we can stick three or four instruments on stage and put them back into the um, uh, into the desk at the back very easily. There's a little bar in the back. It's just kind of cosy and homely. Oh, and uh, one of the things that I'm really delighted that we have is uh, fold-down cinema-style seats, <laughs> um, which probably don't make that much ex- uh, difference to the general <laughs> audience experience, but to me it all just feels like we're, we're making theatre here, um, and that means we can... Uh, we can make attempts to do certain things which are not possible in other rooms. Again, and like just to stress, with no like judgment about some of the amazing places where improv happens, it's just uh, opportunities to do things which haven't been possible up until now in the UK. Yeah, and if everyone was doing improv in one particular way, that mm. would be very samey and very dull. So mm. it's it's great that there's diversity and people are approaching the same art form, but you know, emphasising different things and that sort of stuff. Right, and that's one of the the great things in the last five or six years, I guess it is, with um, Monkey Toast and the Free Association, the London Improv Theatre, and the growth of Hoopla, and um, a bunch of great teachers and stuff that I haven't mentioned in that list, that now it's not do you do improv, it's which improv do you do? Mm. Oh, you're a game-style player. Oh, you're a... Um, a clown style player, oh you're an organic style player, the fact that people are able to have those conversations means that we can it's like saying, oh yeah I like cooking, all of it, you're like no <laughs> do, you, do you like like complicated French sauces or are you a stir fry wizard or do you like pickling things, which I used to really enjoy doing, Just no it's not quite cooking but um, what's your favourite thing to pickle? I really like pickling cucumbers, that's very satisfying. Uh, I also love making uh, sauerkraut, which I guess isn't quite a pickle, but kind of in that way. It's in the... It's, know, it's in the category. Yeah. I made my own sourdough as well, like from the start, from getting some yeast and waiting, getting some flour and waiting for it to go off, and then waiting for it to go off some more. And that's basically how you make sourdough, it turns out. It wasn't very successful, but I did it. That's, <laughs> and I hope one day I'm not saying that about the nursery theatre. <laughs> Didn't work, but I tried. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about yeah this this what the nursery theatre style is. Um, I mean, can you define it? What? Yeah, it's a really interesting question at the moment because um, I know we've been less we have less of a. Uh, a constructed program that you pass through levels one, two, three, or ABC or, or whatever. And I know that some schools have a very strict programs, have a more kind of branching tree. Um, I guess I find it difficult when you're describing styles of improv not to say a bunch of things which are true of all improv. Because <laughs> they can say, oh, I like organic improv. So, well, improv is sort of inherently organic because I guess organic is in a opposition to planned. But maybe not. Um, in terms of what what I can talk about, which is one of the things we want to do in the new theatre, is um, putting on shows which have a... One of the things about giving a show a theatrical setup and a theatrical uh, process is you're 
putting on shows which have a, a time span, they have a lifespan. So we start rehearsing there, we finish rehearsing however many weeks or months later, then we do this many performances and then that's it. Yeah. Which is a model which we've... Um, uh, which, which has happened in, in, in London on a few occasions, but that's something that we will be rolling out from the autumn. We used to have it at the Edric, and that kind of fell apart. Um, but that's something we've stolen from the Hideout Theatre in Austin, Texas. Um, and I think that has two... There are two interesting sides to that. One is that you can... You can have the costumes and sets and sound and lighting design and all, all that kind of... Uh, theatrical coherence or artistic coherence and branding which is much harder to do if you're a Harold team or a freeform team or you know again no bias against any of those things I'm on a bunch of teams that do those things um, but it's nice to have this other area um, and the other part of that I think is that um, when you join an improv team there's that weird feeling of oh am I just in this for forever this is <laughs> just what I do on my Tuesday nights now um, and if you are in a team that's been together for ages and ages and expects to be together for a long time, you need to find the, the show which is going to make everyone happy. Mm. Right? The, the show which everyone really desperately wants to do. Uh, and that's not possible. Um, there's always <laughs> going to be people who like or dislike uh, the, the shows that you're doing. And the, the lovely thing about a kind of described length uh, show or, or theatrical show, rehearsal, performance, finish, is you only have to agree enough for that length of time to throw yourself into it. So you're like, I'm going to do this for a bit, yeah. and then afterwards, we stop. End of November, we stop doing an improvised horror or whatever it is, and then I can go back to doing uh, what, I, uh, what I do with my other teams, or I can go on to a different project. And So it's got a, a personal advantage that you don't have to be constantly seeking consensus, and a professional advantage that you get to go all right, let's do this thing for a while and see what we learn from it. And then let's go back to open form or free form or montage or Harold or, or one of those more uh, less restrictive um, forms and find out what that brings back to, mm. uh, to, to those kind of shows. So that, that's, that's the style of, um, of production, which, of course, that won't be everything that we do, um, but that's the, the way of producing shows which we want to make at the core of our programming. Um, in terms of the style of the performance of the improvisation, it's um, uh, organic as opposed to gamey, I guess. Relationship-based as opposed to as opposed to gamey, I guess. Uh, again, um, following the it's following the impulse rather than the obligation, which again is sort of a description of improv, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I don't imagine there's many any improviser who would listen to that and go, no, I disagree with that. That is I a must, terrible way to I do improv. follow the obligation. Yes, I must, and <laughs> must follow the duty, the crushing, <laughs> soul-destroying duty. <laughs> like a soldier in, I don't know, some part of the British Empire where no one wanted you to be there, which is all of it, I guess. <laughs> Regardless of whether the performer is enjoying themselves or the audience. Yes, exactly. We will, <laughs> we will follow duty. But, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit more Yeah, so organic, freeform, theatrical, emotion-based, relationship-based. Um, but I think it's always with the intention that that shouldn't make us tight-arsed. Um, I don't know if I... I'm sure I've mentioned this in some class because I've, I've talked to you quite a few times. Um, uh, the guy who was the head of acting at um, 
the drama school I went to, like Christian, he would always say, and he was had a proper old Alan Rickman voice and face actually, <laughs> sort of like hangdog um, <laughs> jowls thing. He would say, "Act with loose assholes," <laughs> and I sort of feel like that's a great improv maxim as well. Improvise with loose assholes. <laughs> There's a title for you for the podcast if you, if, if you title in that. Way. <laughs> um, yes, uh, and another advantage of having the um, the fixed run things is that levels of commitment and things like that. Right, of course. We when we had um, you know when we did a few of these at the Edric, we were able to get members of the the showstoppers and ostentatious and stuff to come down and um, and play in a totally new format, which is yeah. Which is great. So, what can we look forward to in the new theatre? Can you can you? Uh, well, the the summer program is is all published. It, everything came around a little bit faster than we expected, so we haven't there hasn't been time to put on nursery originals, which is what we call this program of stuff for the um, uh, for the summer program. Although we do have, we just finished uh, Sonda, which was not quite a nursery original, but which was which operated. Sorry, Sondra is the name of the company. Neverfolk was the name of the um, of the show. Um, it's been in my head as Sonda for so long, that, um, which operated pretty much on that basis of Sondra is a three-person company. They invited some other players to play with them, created a specific show, and that played last week. So that was the closest we have to a nursery original in the summer season. It's sort of nursery um, original adjacent. Yeah, exactly. That I think we haven't formalised the relationship, but um, Sonda will almost definitely be associate artists in some form, I think. What I loved um, about that was the way in which it took the uh, emotion play nursery original and just kind of took some elements of it and then uh, and some of the elements were sort of the grounded reality relationships and then just made it a little bit more fluid mm. and just, you know, because the thing with um, emotion play was all it was all one location, wasn't it? Through different yes, areas. that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was you know really interesting. But then it was also interesting to um, see these folk tales that could go anywhere and had um, you know the props and you know that sort mm. of thing. So uh, it was a really lovely show. Yeah. Um, so if everyone didn't see it. It was the first, I guess, ten minutes. I never timed it, but um, about that was uh, an improvised folk tale, and then the rest of it was scenes based on that coming to a final group scene which I think generally uh, brought you back to the moral of the, mm. of the tale um, and there were lots of things in that show which no one uh, not which no one, which are rarer in the in the London scenes so there's organic tent transitions and physical mirroring and all this stuff which is, it's uh, sorry, I, sh I shouldn't say no one, that's absolutely not the case, there are several great companies doing it um, but that's part of the whole well we really threw our shoulders behind this show and uh, doing three nights in a row allows you to develop and mm. get further with that stuff because um, the people who were doing that show haven't done that style of show before, so it's artistic development for them as well but in, uh, to, to your question um, uh, in terms of uh, shows that are coming up what have we got over the summer um, obviously, um, when you open a theatre, you get to play on the stage fairly frequently. Um, so Heather and I are doing a two-person show, 10,000 Million Love Stories. The Maydays are doing um, Happy Never After, the Tim Burton-themed show. Impromptu Shakespeare are doing their thing. Um, 
we have uh, Scott Adzit visiting and playing some scenes with the audience and some scenes uh, he's putting together a team of people that he knows here which is I don't know I, even I don't know who they are yet which is exciting um, we have uh, a couple of Edinburgh previews uh, Katie Shute and Maria Peters doing their thing we have and then just lots of lovely improv troops um, uh, have we got Troopless and the committee and Big Now and all these uh, uh, classic Andy all these just lovely improv troops who are um, who've sort of knocked around the nursery and been performing at Thursday Night Lights and we're now able to say yes we can give you a I don't know how much I like the term main stage but you know a kind of a weekend hmm. uh, slot to come do your thing and I'm also <laughs> I've got a show with the most ridiculous title ever it's called The Society for the Improvement of Mankind in All Its Flaws and Wonders um, which is uh, I don't quite know what it is yet. It's mostly <laughs> forcing me... I wanted to create a show which requires no rehearsal. You just rock up and do it. So it'd probably be a little bit directed from on stage, kind of Keith Johnson style. Um, but I wanted to create a format which is interesting and fun uh, and dynamic, but doesn't have any of the... Which is a little bit directed, but doesn't have any of the theatre sports competitive element to it. Because while I fucking love that stuff... Um, some people are less comfortable with it, particularly if they have a kind of Chicago training background, um, and you don't want people to clam up. So it's like, hey, come play with us. You don't have to get used to anyone because the whole thing's kind of directed and looked after, and it's not competitive, so you don't have to do that. But just come and play. So wow, that sounds exciting. Uh, so that's our summer season, and then we just opened about three days ago. We opened the applications for the nurse originals directors for the autumn. Um, I think from inside the nursery there is going to be um, am I allowed to talk about this yet? Screw it, it's fine. It's probably my decision whether I can talk about it. <laughs> um, I think we will be having uh, an improvised David Lynch um, uh, a little late but to kind of go with the is it third season? of? Um, yes, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, yes. yeah, of course. It's the third season. Third? It is, yes. yes yeah. Which I haven't seen any of, but apparently it's batshit. Yeah, I... I loved... Did I love Twin Peaks when I watched it? Uh, well, I watched it when it first came out, and it was the first programme that made me distrust pro the uh, showrunners, if that was the correct term at the time, <laughs> because I don't need all the answers in a TV programme. Right. I need to be confident that the makers of the show <laughs> have the answers. Right, yeah, yeah, they have a plan. Even if the plan changes, yeah. I wanted I want you to know not like Lost, which apparently they used to um, read the internet discussions and then deliberately write away from any theory which one would have, which is why it was such a mess at the end. Well, I never I never watched Lost. You you shouldn't. If from what yeah. you just said, you would hate it because I thought you know what I'll wa I won't watch it and we'll get to the end and if they wrap it up in a satisfying manner, then I'll get on board. And uh, they did not, as far as I'm aware. Have you? Um, this is a ridiculous conversation to have on a podcast, but um, <laughs> I've just uh, just started the fourth series of the American Killing or season series, whatever it is. Mm. Um, you know, the, was it Danish? I feel like it was Danish. Yes. Um, it's really good. Yeah. Um, Non-spoiler, spoiler. Um, have you seen the Danish version? No, I haven't. Okay, so in the so this is not even going to help you there. In the <laughs> Danish version, watched it, loved it. 
really hated who it turned out the killer was, not because it was bad television, because I was like, you can't make it that person. No, I don't want to. <laughs> oh, it is. That was like emotionally crushing. In the American version, you sort of identify who is who translated, and then the killer is not the person who it is in the Danish one. Right. Um, which is one of the most... It's, for me, the point where you work out that's true is one of the most... Um, end of usual suspects moments in television. <laughs> oh, I know it's that. Yeah, I know it's that person. No, it's that. Oh, wait, what? No. And, now, and then you have to watch a whole other season to find out who it is. Um, there was a similar thing with uh, True Blood. And I've oh, yeah. read the Charlene Harris books beforehand. Mm. And there were certain things in there um, that the TV series played with your expectations that you would only have that level if you'd read the books beforehand. Right. Which is, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to do. It is a fun thing to do. Um, but probably, I feel like there are much more informed podcasts to talk about television. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> so you mentioned Thursday Night Lights. Yes. Um, and I find it amazing. We should perhaps talk about how it works and everything. Mm. But I find it amazing that people will come along to that who have never improvised before. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Um, and they'll tell you after they've just done... Like a couple of scenes in front of an audience, and they say, "Oh, by the way, I've never done any improv," and it's testament to the skill of some of the improvisers that we get along that that's possible and works. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting what people find to be a low threshold. Because for me, if I didn't know how to do something, I would go to a class in the hope that someone would give me the magic key. I would do the hoopla beginners course at least three times. Right. Well, exactly three times actually. In my case, <laughs> is that what you did? <laughs> yeah. Three times. It was brilliant, man. How bad were you? Well, uh, that, well, I'm pretty, 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 pretty terrible. It just have to be said. Uh, but, you know, I did one with Edgar, I did one with Maria, and then I did one with Steve. So that's pretty much three different courses anyway. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I was terrified of performing. I loved doing the improv, yeah, right. but I was really, really terrified of performing. So the idea of doing, a, you know, beginners and then going on to the performance one, I just, I couldn't do it. And I, yeah. But I was really enjoying it, so I just carried on doing the beginners. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear it. When I was... Um, uh, I didn't come through a course system because there wasn't one when I started improvising. Uh, but when I was first part of now defunct, I believe defunct, they might still be around, um, group called the Impresarios, which came out of the Guildhall School, I would be cycling to the gigs, which we had monthly in the student union room, the back of the student union bar, and I would Rolodex in my head ways in which I could get out of doing the gig that I was cycling to, and eventually conclude that the only way I could do it was by faking a bike accident or something, which you obviously can't do. So yes, I, I hear that. I totally hear that. <laughs> so, but people come along and um, they join in. Um, there are three jams. Mm -hmm. um, one is a fairly straightforward two-person, uh, as if there's anything straightforward about a two-person scene. Right. It's a, usually a two-person scene. Yeah, normally two or sometimes three-person yeah. scene. There's just scenes from... Uh, names from a hat and then uh, you do a scene and then the round of applause and then it kind of resets um, yeah so three jams are the, the, the scenes jam there's a long form jam which is where people get to play around with that sort of montage semi heraldy territory although we're never that strict um, so you use uh, sweeps and tags and swarms and the occasional like hawk edit or some weird stuff what's a hawk edit I mean it pretty much never happens but what's a <laughs> Alexis Gallagher used to used to talk about the most um, uh, where someone flies in and like picks up a character <laughs> and puts them in a different situation it's basically a, 
like a pimped up version of a of a tag app. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in the, in that section, you can throw any sort of editing techniques from that school at it. <laughs> and then we have the concept jam, which is also sort of a scenes jam, um, but we uh, we give a little bit of pepper to it by giving a, a concept over the top of it to either make your life difficult or push you into places where you wouldn't normally play. I so, believe balloons were involved one week. Were yeah, there was one, one? Uh, blowing up balloons and then like stuffing them under your clothing in order to uh, exaggerate your physicality like Buffon and then just messing around with that. You see, you've explained it. I thought, oh, that sounds a lot lot better than <laughs> what I just heard. It sounds like a real thing. There was one, my favourite one, I wasn't there, but um, my favourite one I heard about was uh, uh, a concept jam which is entirely in French, even though one person in the eight spoke French. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just stupid shit like that that um, the sort of four or five of us who are generally running it come up with and throw at people which is always super fun so yeah I think the the thing we the, which we do which because um, uh, we didn't want to just make another jam night there are lots of great jam nights um, there's a hoopla one there's Duck Duck Goose the uh, C3 one at the Millers lots of great places to just go and jam like well if we're going to do one which we do want to do because we've got this lovely new space um, let's make it different and the I, I believe we are one not the only but one of the only places to have the players warm up with each other beforehand. Mm. So you arrive at seven, you warm up, and then the show starts at eight, show in quotes. Because um, we wanted to semi-force, but like strongly encourage people to um, play with people that they don't normally play with. Mm. And this is a way of doing that. A lot of the times the teams, you have those three jams, which are 50 minutes long each. And there's three teams who get 50 minutes long as well, uh, 50 minutes set. Um, and often people in the teams will play in the jams and people, in the, you know, so it all kind of mixes together and people get to meet and play mm. around with different um, different improvisers and people they've never met before. I guess that's the, that's one thing which is really important to the nursery style of improv is that there isn't a wrong way um, and part of that, part of the frustration of that is that also means there isn't a right way. <laughs> Um, so Joran Gargwello who's an amazing improviser from uh, uh, from Chicago well, not from Chicago lives in Chicago um, has a wonderful thing which he gets people to do in classes which is he gets improvisers to ask each other how do I delight you today what can I do which will make the scene that you really want to be in right now yes um, that's a lovely thing. Yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely, a lovely principle, too, yeah. and I, I got it from, uh, sort of, stole it from him last May, and have used it. If it was a pair of shoes, it would be opening at the front like a little mouth. <laughs> um, and I think that that's the thing that I see at TNL in a really lovely way that you see people of very different styles, whether that's personally or because of their training, um, still striving to do a goddamn improv scene rather than fighting to demonstrate that the way that they do it is better. Hmm. Um, that was more articulate than I was before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, although I, I say that I find it amazing that people come along to jams, well, TNL in particular, and perform. Actually, that's probably reflecting my lack of confidence right when I started. Because, right. Right? I mean, it is, yeah, it's, you know, if, if you're going to have a warm-up with everyone beforehand... 
it's a great way to you know get on stage yeah because I've, I've certainly been in those situations where you get called out as Jules and um, Federica and I'm on stage and you shake hands with someone hi I'm Federica and they're like oh, now you're going to play a scene together that's to me that's weird I, I'm, I'm definitely on your end of the scale of um, <laughs> nervousness or it's, it's not really introversion is it it's um, desire to be good before you uh, <laughs> desire to be good before you are tested um, yes, and I guess maybe you know that whole thing of um, uh, you're always teaching the class that you should be going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe what ended up happening is when Jenna and I were kind of hammering out what TNL was trying to, was looking like, we were making the jam that we would have gone to, <laughs> which is pro- probably the case. It never occurred to me before. Yeah, hmm. um, and there are also drop-ins on uh, Wednesday evenings. And on Saturdays, Saturday afternoons. Saturday afternoons. Yeah. Um, so we have those two drop-ins. We have a monthly free improv uh, kind of taster session Sunday afternoon. Puddle jumping. Puddle jumping. Um, and I think uh, this, the, uh, this will be the first public place that I've said this, but I think we'll probably be starting a drop-in class at the new space. Because, right. yeah, that's not, I guess that's not obvious if people haven't come across the nursery before. Our training centre is in London Bridge and our theatre is in... Broadgate, which is next to Liverpool Street, um, so they're in different buildings. So, make a make a bugger feature, and we'll be starting a class up there in September. And then we have longer courses and international visitors, and you know, all those things. Cool. And so the the Saturday, I get the impression is generally more people who are near the beginners stage. I think that probably. Uh, used to be the case when that was the class that you came to more often. It, I, you're more often here in the week now. Um, I think probably the Wednesday and the Saturday classes are pretty, pretty similar. You'll get a, a wide spectrum of people who've never done any improv before in their lives and yeah. are either terrified or too confident. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, you get people who've done it normally up to about a couple of three years, and then the occasional. I've been doing this for 10 years, but I'm just passing through town. I wanted to do a class, oh, which is lovely, yes. yeah, a lovely thing. We tend to get, we tend to get Americans, uh, I'd say like one or two a month, we get Americans who are like, oh yeah, I, I train in like Nashville in the improv society there, and I just thought I'd pass through and do an improv class. <laughs> All right, cool. Welcome. I mean, the nice thing about the Saturday is that you finished at four o'clock and you can go to the pub afterwards and it's not really late. No, <laughs> exactly. The number of times I've sort of not eaten, because it's an awkward time of day as well. It's one to four in the afternoon. That's the only way it works. Um, but quite often people will not have any lunch, go to the pub afterwards and realise that they're three or four beers in and they haven't <laughs> eaten since 10 o'clock in the morning. And I can't help but feel slightly responsible. <laughs> well, I eat beforehand and then when I get to the pub... Uh, so, uh, Smart. See, that's how to do it like a grown <laughs> isn't it? Cool. Right, so, big finish question. Big question finish. Oh, you did promise there was going to be a big, big finish. Big finish question time. Yeah. Um, what is the signature Jules Munn's move on stage? What is it that you do and people go, classic Munn's, what can you be relied upon to bring? Huh. That's a good question. Um... I think as a player I am most my natural habitat is as a, as a supporting player um, 
so probably massively over committing to someone else's idea is probably like a like a cuckoo in the <laughs> in the nest of someone else's idea um i will i will sit there and get larger and larger and larger until the idea falls apart um yeah that uh, yeah i think that sounds right grabbing onto something that someone's offered and powering for it what's your signature move anyone ever asked you that before no they have not and i'm not very good when people suddenly ask me questions um i um i don't think i have a signature move but I am very aware of trying to avoid getting trapped doing the same thing. So right. I, I don't want to be chopping carrots all day. I want to be doing something else and filling out the scene. Is that what you mean? Um, more um, that I went through a phase of playing child characters. Right. Part, you know, um, I think partly that was um, uh, abnegating my responsibility to drive the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've tried to stop doing that. Um, I have, and at the moment, I'm trying to work on being less agreeable. <laughs> Not as a person or as an improviser, but as a character. Because I feel, um, at the, I did the uh, Showstoppers Improvers course, and in the showcase for that, I was cast as the villain of the piece, and I got to just be horrible to people. And... Um, it was somehow acceptable and delightful and made the show. So I'm working on, you know, agreeing with uh, people's offers, but not necessarily always playing agreeable characters. Nice. It's interesting when you, because on the nursery podcast, at the end of the, uh, my finished question is always, um, what are you working on in your improv right now? Uh, I find it very interesting how often people have an idea of their style of improv which can be very far away from what other people think is their style of improv not because they're inaccurate but because often the thing that you think you do is what you are fleeing for in order to do improv so it was very interesting um, Jason Schotts who you know of, of Dummy um, was talking about his how he started doing improv, and you can hear all this on the Nursery podcast um, with Dummy, the second one, um, that he was like negative and kind of over talky and would kind of knock people's ideas down. And as you hear him describing the stuff, if you ever seen him play or taken a class with him, it, it, none of that computes with <laughs> the guy who's sitting in front of you because. Um, Jason's signature move is yeah yeah like just a big nod and a smile and a twinkly eyes and like this assertion but obviously that 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 negativity or knocking people down is the thing which he has got away from in order to get to the thing that he's doing and improv has given him that massively over years so it's interesting to hear you see the kind of uh, to see what the um, the axis is on which you your improv is operating between agreeability and cruelty, I guess, almost, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's because you are a very agreeable and likable chap. And well, hooray! Like, let's keep that. Yes, no, I'm, I never want to lose that, but I also don't necessarily just want to play those characters. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose if I'm going to be creepy or evil or nasty. I just really want to commit to that because 
you know, it's going to make it easier for the per- people I'm playing with if I'm really clear about what I'm doing. So, right, and it's going to make it more fun for you if the the point of view or the emotion or the attitude which you are playing in the scene is a choice rather than a fear-based default. Yes. Or a habit-based default rather than. Yes, I think I think you know you can play whatever you like, but if it's become a habit or you're doing it out of fear, then that's maybe something to work on. Yeah. Should be a, should be a choice. I reckon. So I've got to get out of that habit too. Oh, great. <laughs> I hate it when you come into a point of like, oh, there we are, conscious incompetence. Now I have to deal with that shit. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I swore too much on your podcast. That's fine. I don't think you swore very much at all, actually. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> well, refreshing. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> I made this. That's improv! <laughs>